Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast, the space where we explore common misunderstandings of how life works, allowing us to gain new perspectives on health, wealth, relationships, and much more. Life doesn't have to be hard work. It can be a flowing collection of experiences if we learn some simple truths about how our experience is created. Through this understanding, we realize that at a fundamental level, we are all already whole and perfect. Okay, we're live. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast. Great to see you. Great to see you too, Jason. Thank you. And I've been I've been excited actually about this, you know, because I've like a lot of my friends in the three principles community that I talked to said, I've got got Thomas Kelly to do a agree to do a podcast with me on trauma, you know, and it's kind of like I've been um you know reading your work and using your academic references for a while. And I've really appreciated that. And um when the subject of trauma came up, you know, as someone to speak to about it, I thought you would be a great, a great person. And um you know, as we were just talking before, you know, I had um, in the world, you know, in the psychodynamic world, you know, that I existed in or lived in before I found the principles, you know, I had so many theories and ideas about trauma, about what it was, um, you know, and, and that there still is many theories that, it, you know, that it exists in the body, that it's a, an unexplainable phenomenon that creates reactions in the present day based on what happened um, in the past, you know, and, and as somebody that, you know, um, you know, my first memory is, and I still literally think it is my first memory was the light of the, my dad going out and then the police being at the door and then my mum screaming hysterically on the floor because my dad had been killed in an accident. So I always, for many years, told this story of, um, you know, childhood trauma, how this uh, event, you know, significant event had, um affected me and how I'd ended up, you know, going and having various mental health diagnoses and then suffering with addiction for many years and, and stuff like that. And then post, post recovery from addiction, um, you know, every, many people talked about trauma and I would, it was always like a badge of honor to me, like something I talked about as if, you know, I, oh yeah, I've got childhood trauma. I have that, you know, it's like, as if it was some sort of, um, some sort of great, part of my identity you know and and um and then when I found the principles it was weird because at first I still I didn't realize what I'd found you know I didn't realize what, like the truth of what I'd noticed I just noticed that my life got a lot better at first but I thought addiction and trauma was somehow separate you know that addiction was still a disease and that um, trauma was still a real thing and I say still a real thing not like in a way of discredit in anyone's experience you know because um but I what I mean by that is that I saw it as something that I still was affected by until I didn't you know and the same with addiction until I realized that I wasn't an addict and I didn't go to, didn't need to go to meetings to recover and that I was okay and that my mental health was within and that you know that was that was what I was made of you know, until I realized that and when I really truly saw that and I stopped going to meetings and stopped practicing things to make me okay, um, they still look real to me. And in the same way with trauma, addiction went first for me and then trauma, you know, it was the simplest of questions from a friend, you know, when I said I'd had a, a traumatic response to an event that had happened in my daily 
experience um she asked me the question is that true that was it you know that was all she asked me and i was just kind of like and i had one of those i'm sure you've experienced one of those kind of mind-bending moments where i just kind of my head went a little bit like well is that true you know and i started pondering it and i thought well no i'm not you know it's not true it's kind of like it isn't because of that you know and i and, and what i realized myself was that I still had trauma or still suffered from the effects of trauma while I thought I did. That was my realization because I was the one making the connection between the present day experiences and the experiences of the past. And um, when I stopped doing that, I stopped putting everything that happened that seemed like a response to trauma, you know, like my fear as a passenger when I got in the car, my anxiety about getting on a plane, all those things, when I stopped connecting them, that somehow they just eventually just stopped being there you know so that's my my start you know and i'd love to hear from you you know because i, I loved your paper that you wrote on trauma you know and the and the how three principles um you know has a different perspective on trauma and that's what i'd love to hear from you well it's very interesting as you were talking you know so many things <clears throat> went through my mind um you know, I think the most important thing is, is when you said that you had what I would call, a, you know, an insight. And, 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 and I guess that's the most important thing with this understanding, uh, you know, in, in our culture here in the U.S. And, and perhaps in the U.K. too, my guess is we've kind of, we've kind of deified the intellect, you know, put it up on a pedestal. And so for most people, understanding uh, tends to be, be seen as, uh, as something that we, we kind of put together intellectually, like two plus two or the formula pi r squared, and then we get an answer. And, and interesting with you. And I guess when, when that person says, said, is it true? Uh, that, was that a three principles person or just somebody yeah. that you knew? Oh, it yeah, was. No. Yeah, it was a three principles. <laughs> Well, good. We tend to ask the better questions. So. <laughs> That's good. Well, it doesn't matter because when, when Sidney Banks had this insight, at least the story goes uh, that I've heard many times. Uh, uh, I don't know if he was on the beach or if he was at a conference or whatever, but it, it is said that that he was talking to someone about how insecure he was and, 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 and therefore how bad his life was going. And then the person that he was with, and, I, and obviously it wasn't a three principles person because it started with Sid, said to him, you're not insecure, Sid, you just think you are. And um, it's interesting, this, this ability to think, this principle of thought, this, 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 this uh, power that we have that just brings thoughts to mind. And then, and then we experience these thoughts uh, is what psychologists who invented transactional analysis, and you said that was in your background, mm -hmm. cognitive behavior therapy. I think even today, there's about 400 different uh, approaches, different therapeutic approaches. So if you had a, a room, a hallway where there were 400 doors and you walked into each room, you know, you'd have one person uh, crying You'd have another person perhaps talking to an imaginary person in an empty chair uh, and then so on and so on and so on. And the interesting thing, 
this ability to think this power of thought is what gave all the, the therapists in all of those rooms the ability to make up uh, or imagine uh, what trauma is. And therefore, obviously, when you have a, uh, your own interpretation of what something is, then it also leads to a particular prevention or remedy. And of course, whatever people think looks like the truth. And, and interestingly enough, all of these approaches, I mean, I mean, if in some way they weren't pointing toward the truth, uh, my guess is even though people don't know much about therapy and they just take the word of the therapist, I mean, I mean, some days I've thought, you know, if, if some people came in and with trauma and, and, and they didn't know anything about therapy, I mean, I could have them doing anything. You know, I want you to squeeze your nose. I'd, I'd like you to look up in the air and breathe three times to the left. And interestingly enough, if I had established a very, very close relationship where they thought saw me as very compassionate, very empathic, uh, if, if, if that relationship was there and as a result of that, their mind quieted. In other words, they felt comfortable with me and they kind of came into the moment and, and, and felt a sense of presence. My guess is, is that they would think perhaps that squeezing their nose and looking up to the left was helpful because they wouldn't understand the source of their well-being. And, and, and again, what's coming to mind now is, is so much research with the efficacy of pretty much all the therapies that are out there. And there's a lot of evidence that really one is no more effective than the other. And, and that oftentimes the effectiveness relates to the role of the therapist, to the demeanor of the therapist, to the ability of the therapist to listen closely. So if you, if you, if you have that kind of relationship, whatever you're doing, as far as I can see, is going to be associated with people feeling better. The problem as far as I can see is that both the therapist, for the most part, both the therapist and the client don't understand what the source is of that well-being. They don't understand where it comes from. You know, I was looking, listening to a, um, to a uh, video by uh, Dick and Bettinger, whom I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners may have, have heard of and listened to. And Dickon was talking about the thing that everybody wants. And, and the thing that everybody wants, he said, and I agree, is well-being. And Dickon went on to say, the truth of the matter is, is that everybody out there, irrespective of their past socialization, uh, the circumstances they've experienced, the adverse, adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, there's a credible amount of research on those. They're called ACEs. You can talk about that. That everybody has perfect well-being, perfect well-being, perfect well And he just kept repeating that. And then he went on to say what happens is that over time, 
that well-being begins to get covered up with layers and layers and layers of thought. Well, that's really not the problem. The problem is, is that either over time or right from the start, although I think it's over time, because, you know, very young children have layers and layers and layers of thought that, that come to mind. The difference between young children and most of us older people, uh, you know, or most older people, if people get older, is that young children are much less likely to believe those thoughts. <clears throat> much, le much less likely to take those thoughts seriously. And as a result of that, those thoughts simply pass by and they're living in the realization that you had. They don't know it, but they're living in it. You know, they just go back to well-being because they don't hold on to the weather, the psychological weather that comes, that comes through. And Dickens said, if people just simply would stop believing the thoughts that come to mind, there would be no mental illness. And I started thinking about that, you know, all the way from uh, just simply the most minor stressors, like today when I was driving here and, and somebody pulled out of a, of a we have U-turns here to get back around to going in another direction. Somebody turned out quicker than I thought they should. And so immediately, uh, resentful thoughts came to mind. I find myself kind of annoyed. Uh, I think I even said an expletive. Drove by this lady in the car and honked my horn. And for about three minutes in my rearview mirror, I was kind of waiting for her to catch up so I could give her a dirty look. Now, this happens to me often. And it, it, the reason, the reason, you see, there are a lot of good people in jail who in the moment, in a, in a comparable moment that I just described, don't have the understanding in their mind that their experience is coming with, from them. Can you imagine what would happen if people realize that every experience they have was coming from them. It was just simply a temporary manifestation of thought that was not the truth. Can you imagine what would happen? Because if people realize that, blame would end. And imagine what would happen if in the psychological world, and this is another thing that Dickens said in that video, if there was no blame. He also said that blame is the birth, uh, no, understanding where the source of your experience comes from is the birth of self-responsibility and the absence of blame. Now, just occurs to me, that one of the, the big things that is related to mental health in general, and probably more so with trauma in, in general, is forgiveness. And it would seem to me that blame and forgiveness uh, 
go together. There's a connection there. And Sid Banks said, when you forgive someone, you, left your, you let yourself off the hook. And people kind of know that intellectually. You know, they know, they know that if they forgave someone, they probably would feel better. But you know something, it's hard for a lot of people to do it. Because when you think the other person did something to you, and in many cases, it's true, they did. But if you don't understand how the principles work, how they manifest within all of us to create our experience, if you don't realize on some level that that person who probably is better locked up if that's where that person is, I agree, I'm not some bleeding heart. I mean, when people don't understand these principles and are going out and behaving into thoughts that they believe that aren't in their best interest and they're hurting other people, then there needs to be a consequence. <clears throat> On the other hand, if I'm the one who's hurt and I continue to blame that person, and, and by the way, I mean, you know, that's only going to happen when those thoughts come to mind, like you said. But when they come to mind, if I believe them and I get gripped by them and I get caught up in them and I start having revengeful thoughts and, and revengeful feelings, like Dickens said, who, who am I hurting? I mean, I'm hurting me. That's one thing. And the other thing, at least it's made a big difference for me, is that the people who are in my life in the, in the past who have hurt me, and typically it hasn't been extreme. I mean, it's been things like people who've been unfair because some people get traumatized by unfairness. <laughs> uh, I, I know uh, I'm thinking about a Detroit Tigers pitcher who was pitching a perfect game. Ninth inning, two outs, ground ball to the shortstop. The shortstop throws the first. Replay shows the batter was out by a step, safe by a step, no, out by a step, and the umpire calls him safe. Well, I heard that this pitcher ended up having post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, why? Well, apparently, you know, the memory of that and what he made it mean and the thoughts that would come up couldn't get rid of those. What happens if people hold on to painful thoughts? Well, if they, and, and, and we, we would call that misusing the power of thought. By the way, let me just, I, I know I'm kind of rambling, but I just want to mention to you that Bill Pettit and I and Judy Sedgman and Jack Kransky are doing a paper and the title of the paper is called One Mental Illness. And um, there's a lot of research out there that misusing the power of thought to worry, to blame, to ruminate, 
to uh, think perfectionistically. You know, any one of a number of myriad ways that people misuse the power of thought. The consensus of psychotherapy research is that chronic disordered thinking relates directly with myriad forms of psychopathology. Some of the prim primary researchers of this said, and I quote, in psychopathology research, perseverative cognitive process, processes, such as stress-producing cognitions that are repeatedly activated, like worry and rumination, have received increasing attention and have been recognized as core ideological factors in the onset and maintenance of several psychological disorders. The research shows that they're related to clinical depression, pessimism, heightened anger, PTSD symptomology, increased anxiety and difficulty concentrating, poor problem solving, sleep quality, reduced quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the problem with this is, you see, people that do this research are going to say, okay, what, what is the solution? Well, in terms of how they're seeing things, they're gonna say, well, we've gotta help teach people to stop worrying. We've gotta help teach people to stop uh, doing these things. Or we've gotta help people change their circumstances so they don't worry that much, okay? Rather than having people understanding the source of it all. I'm talking a lot. Why don't I turn it back to you for a second? I'm sure that's kind of resonated something. So direct me if you would. Yeah. I, I think the most thing that I that stood out to me was when you were saying about, or it was something that triggered my thinking around like, like the wanting to hold on to it, you know? Like it was kind of like... Um, For many years, it was a, an important part of my self-image. You know, it was an important part, like unbeknown to me, you know, that way. But it was kind of like, as I look back at it reflectively, um, it would seem that me wanting to hold on to that part of my identity would be instrumental in whether or not I would want to let go of it also. You know, it would be part of that, the, the same sort of push-pull sort of understanding of it so it was kind of like that um i think for for so long it was if it gave me some part of identity so like even un unknowingly to me and i see this with people also that i've worked with that it's kind of like they're kind of attached to the idea of having a trauma you know having a childhood trauma i wondered what you i wondered what you saw about that well it reminds me of that movie i can't remember the name of the movie where Fight Club, you ever see Fight Club? Yeah. It starts out with one of the main actors, and I can't remember his name, I can see his face right now. And he's going to a support group. Yeah. And, uh, and he meets this uh, lady, attractive lady to him in, in this support group. And then he, the next night he's going to another support group and she's there again. And they get together and they start this, and they realize that they're both going to several different support group meetings. And they start arguing about which support group they each one should have because uh, they've kind of connected their value and their worth and they, they, they want, 
Now you, can, you can't come to my support group, that's mine. Reminds me of, of the joke, I don't know if you've heard it, of the, the uh, support group for people who are addicted to support groups <laughs> yeah. called On and On and On. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So people think they are their thoughts. I mean, it's an, it's an innocent misunderstanding, but people think they are their thoughts. People think they are their groups. Uh, I mean, talk about separate realities. Look at the political situation now between the president, uh, President Trump and, and Vice President Biden, who, I mean, the, it's like, it's like, it's, it's amazed. It's the greatest example of separate realities I've ever seen. Mm because the beliefs are so different about the exact same <laughs> stuff. So no, um, until people get that, that their thoughts are simply an interpretation. You know, a lot of people who even begin to understand that it's their thinking that's creating their experience, they still think that what they've been blaming it on in the past is the truth. Oh, oh yeah, I know it's my thinking, but, but, but still that's awful out there. And, and the very same event uh, is seen differently by different people. I had a young girl come into my office and there's a, there's a picture on the wall, a big picture above my, my head now. And, and every now and then I'll ask people, can, can you rate that picture for me on a scale from one to 10? One being uh, you hate it and 10 being you love it. And this young girl looked up and she shuddered. I could see a shudder. And she gave it like a one or two. And um, she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, it just, I don't like it. Well, that's okay, it's fine. I just was, was curious and and, and maybe down the road, we can talk about that. Well, a couple of weeks later, she came in and she said, Dr. Kelly, I think I know why I rated that picture one or two. And I said, well, why? She said, well, you know, I was sexually abused by my grandfather when I was young. And he used to take me into his bedroom and he had a picture that looked something like that on the wall. And I said, ah, okay, I get it. I said, well, do me a favor. Look up again and tell me uh, how you would rate that picture today. And she looked up. She said, well, you know, that's kind of a nice picture. I said, well, what would you give it today? And she said, well, I, I'd give it maybe an eight. And I said, well, why do you think you rated it a one, two weeks ago and an eight today? And this was kind of a little test. And she said, well, because today I'm looking at it through different thinking. Um, another example that comes to mind is another lady that came to me and she had been in Florida uh, during one of the big hurricanes that came into Florida and uh, her house had, had, had received significant damage and the neighborhood really bad damage and she had moved to Michigan and she came uh, in to see me and 
she said, Dr. Kelly, she said, I, there must be something wrong with me. I'm, I'm feeling extremely guilty and I don't know what to do about it. And I said, well, why? She said, well, I told you about the hurricane and all of that, what happened. But she said, after the hurricane, I went out and I started helping people in my neighborhood. I started, you know, helping people kind of uh, find places to stay. And, and um, you know, my place was not all totally damaged. So I was still able to cook some food and all of that. And she said, for the next 10 days, I felt wonderful. I felt better than I've ever felt in my life. And I said, well, why are you feeling guilty now? She said, well, I must be some kind of horrible person. I mean, my good, everybody else was just traumatized and, and crying and upset. And I felt free. And she said, uh, you know, I kind of look back at that experience as one of the best times of my life. Well, it's, it, isn't that interesting? Here's someone that didn't understand that when that hurricane came in, you know, all of that layer of thinking that was over her well-being just kind of, it's like smoke, it kind of cleared. And she went out and started helping other people and was in a state of, of service. Wasn't a service again, because that, that's another myth that, that a lot of therapists have. You can just be in service. And then we get people who are addicted to service <laughs> and they can't say no. <laughs> and then they begin to get stressed out. Well, it worked at first, but now I'm really stressed out. I'm trying to serve everybody. Um, people don't know that the source of their experience is coming from within. It's this innate health that wells up, that bubbles up, mental health bubbles up as soon as people's minds clear. Well, once this woman began to realize that, then she began to stop blaming herself because she could see the truth. And she also began to see why she wasn't feeling all that great before the hurricane came a lot of times. So that began to point her in the right direction. The direction, as far as I can see, of truth, and really we call these things principles, and, 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 and principle really are fundamental universal facts or truths about how people function psychologically. It just seems to me that knowing, knowing the truth, knowing print, I mean, electricity doesn't care if you're electrocuted. And a tidal wave doesn't care if you're on the beach when it comes in. These things just operate according to the principles that are behind them. And it's the same thing with the principles, the three principles. They just do what they do. And if we don't understand them, it's very, very easy to innocently misuse them. Yeah, I, I want to, I'd like to add something. I, I think like <clears throat> what stands out to me is the simplicity of your understanding, you know, and it's like, it just, you know, I, 
I often chuckle to myself when I'm kind of listening to someone that I've, you know, read of and heard of and seen in videos. And then I listen and it's the same simple message, you know, because I'm, I'm still conditioned to wait for this real complex um, answer to this huge, big, you know, thing that in the world that's been made into a, a big thing. And, I, and it, may, it got me thinking about, you know, it's almost like the world of, psychology you know and 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 helping professions like you said there's 400 different types of um therapies you know i often talk about that in the stuff that i write and um you know because none of them have found an answer they keep creating new ones you know and it's kind of like and we're so addicted to complexity that we come up with all these we make things into a big long you know like oh you know like as a therapist it would be oh well if someone came you know with a with a trauma well it probably take years you know it's kind of like that was one of the things i mean it, it hardly sounds hopeful does it well it might take a couple of years and even then you might just feel a bit better but you might have to feel worse in the process it's hardly like if i was going for therapy now and someone said that to me it would be like well, that doesn't sound very appealing you know but um that's almost like how I see it, that like everyone is kind of like um, un unknowingly conditioned into looking for the answers in complexity, whereas the answers are only available in simplicity, you know, and while from simplicity we can understand complexity, like the other way around, it just doesn't work, you know, with that complex mind looking for this big solution, we tend to believe um, the medical profession and people with certain credentials that, you know, the way they talk about trauma as if it's some big thing that's difficult to recover from. We take it as fact as I did for many years. And then it turns into this giant thing that's kind of like unexplainable and fixable. But like what, what I love about what you're talking about is, is that it's just so simple, you know, to see beyond, to see the, the, you know, when we see, the truth of our experience, where it comes from, when we see that our external reality is not real, it's not concrete, it's not solid, you know, that, that uh, there's something between what happens and what we experience, you know, called perception, you know, and, mm -hmm. and when we see that our true nature is not a self image that we've created in our mind that's made of thoughts, an idea about who we are, a story, when we see that our true nature is that innate mental health, that resilience that we're all made of. It's kind of like, it, it really is that simple, I guess. It is. If I was that simple in my writing, I probably wouldn't get my stuff sent out to peer reviewers. Yeah, true. And um, I guess what comes to mind for me is the word humility. And I don't know if this is the correct definition, but to be simple again, I would say it is kind of coming from a place where you, where you realize you don't know everything and you're willing to not know. And, and in academia, academia, that that's, that's supposedly a quality that academics have. I mean, when you, when we do research, we're supposed to step back and, and I guess pretend we don't know, um, and and then and then do research in a way that comes up with uh, with more objective reality rather than rather than uh, proving what we think we know. And there's some doubt about whether that really happens. 
But I know you were talking earlier about writing this uh, program for addictions and then sending it off and the people didn't understand it. Um, well, in order to really understand something, and I have a chapter in, in my book, uh, How Good Can You Stand It, uh, about listening for insights and trying to get people to listen from not knowing. And, and that's hard to do. And, and it's one reason why people aren't good listeners, most people, because they're listening, waiting to say the next opinion that's coming into their waiting for the, the person that they're talking to to stop so that they can give them advice or their next opinion or what have you. And it's the same with an academician. I mean, if, if you've wedded your identity to a form of therapy and you've been practicing it for years and writing about it for years, perhaps, um, are you going to be able to hear something new? Is something new going to resonate with you that has really, that's a whole new way of looking at things from what you've been talking about your whole life? Mm. I mean, it kind of relates to what you were talking about, how you identified with your, with your uh, diagnosed yeah. illness. But on the other hand, if it gets through and somebody has an insight, I mean, that's what matters. I mean, when we send things out, when we, Bill, Judy, and I have sent papers out to various, uh, various journals and gotten some good, mostly negative feedback, you know, and Bill Pettit will say, you know, I think that, that this resonated with this person. I think this person really had an insight, you know, mm. um, because we know that, that, that nothing really happens until that happens. And then when that happens, all of a sudden complexity kind of collapses into simplicity. And in some way, you know, it's kind of, I, I did cognitive behavior therapy forever with people. Um, I'd have them do homework, you know, and keep three column charts and all that kind of stuff. Some people came in with 10, 12 pages of homework and they'd give it to me, you know, and I kind of felt guilty because I never did it, you know, and, and, and really I put it in their file and I wouldn't hardly even look at it, you know, and, and there was just something about it. I knew just like I knew when I was really young that the women I was dating weren't really my soulmates, that I was dating them because they looked a particular way and, and, you know, and, and they fit my image. And, uh, but I knew on some level that something was, was missing. And I knew that with every pro approach I used before. Now, I don't know why this stuff resonated with me when I first read a book on it back in 1989, but it did. And thank God that it did because it has it, totally changed, transformed my life. I probably would have left Wayne State or, or been looked down on at Wayne State 20 years ago, because the research I was doing, I was just doing it to check off the research part. Mm. You know, when I was teaching delinquency and child abuse and neglect and correctional counseling methods, uh, I was saying the same old things that I'd said over and over and over again. But once I understood the principles, all of a sudden, 
my God, this whole new way of seeing things came up for me and has made, has, has shifted my whole life from, from doing things to prove something or to check off boxes or whatever to doing something that I feel privileged to do and I'm passionate about and, and, uh, and, and, and blessed to be a part of this at this point in its evolution. Mm. Yeah, I going back a little bit, you know, it really um, made sense to me what you said about when someone's invested their whole identity in a certain way of seeing things, you know, and I kind of get that with the addiction stuff a lot that someone's very, the ground that they walk on is kind of wrapped up in, in their understanding of the problem that they have, you know, so they're unwilling to to look at another way of seeing it. And I guess that that's true for trauma too, you know, in the same way that if people are wrapped up in that belief and understanding of it, that, um, you know, they, they really, and I like what um, Bill Petty always says, you know, to me is that people don't care what you know until they know that you care, you know? And it's like, there's, the, there's never anything to teach to people about this stuff. You know, it's kind of like just finds its own organic way into conversations with people that are struggling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess we're coming close to the end of time. I know we've only got a few minutes left. So um, is there anything, is there anything else to add from your side? Well, what you just said, <clears throat> know that you care that that resonated with me in, in this way. <clears throat> you know, when I was, when I was doing other types of therapy, what what that means to me is that I was that I was absorbed into a particular belief system, mm. into a particular way of doing therapy, uh, and so I was kind of I was kind of there, but actually not there because I was kind of taking everything that was going on and putting it, trying to put it within the framework of this approach. So when you said, you know, being with someone, it's hard for me to, to understand how somebody can truly be with someone at a deep level. If that's their state of mind or the framework they're coming from in in their work. Um, The freedom to walk into some, with someone and to have this interview. It was funny. I was in bed last night. <laughs> I totally forgot about our interview today or about our thing today. Mm-hmm. Last night, I looked at my, my appointment book without my glasses. And I saw Jason. And I kept thinking, well, is this a new client? And who is, I don't remember Jason. Then last night, I'm in bed. And all of a sudden it dawns on me and I'm thinking, holy crap. You know, I didn't pull out those articles. I didn't read them. That was my intention. And then the thought came to me, you know, this could be a blessing in disguise. This is the beauty of this understanding. So I got in here about 1230 and half hour before I pulled the articles out here, read a little bit from one, but just simply trusted, you know, my own, I guess, health to guide me. Mm. And as far as I can see, when people are doing that, the other person is is more able to see that that person is there, that's present, 
that it, it you know you're not you're not reading from one of those things that the that the politicians uh, used to do speeches with. Yeah. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, I think that's one reason why Donald Trump has connected with so many people here in the U.S. because mm. he has that ability. Yeah. Whether whether you like his, I, I think we should vote based on policies and all of that, but. <laughs> but that's one thing I think that uh, that's made a connection for him with people. Yeah. Yeah. It, you just remind me of, um, I mean, I think what you're talking about is trans what, what I call transformative presence, you know, like just being with a person with nothing on your mind and no intention and no framework. And I, you reminded me of like the very first insight that I had, you know, in the three principles intensive a few years back, um, I knew straight away one of the it was kind of like one of those things where your life flashes before you and all sorts of stuff you start questioning is it really true is that really true and one of the insights or things that I questioned in that moment was well actually that's not true what I realized was was that I could no longer practice psychotherapy as I know it that because it's of absolutely no value you know and it was like that was my realization after spending so many years in training as a therapist and practicing, you know, in that way, I just knew, I didn't know what I would do instead and I didn't know how it would work, but I just knew that um, taking people back into their past and connecting, you know, past experience with present day stuff was just not of, not, not the way to um, realize mental health, you know? Yeah, no. And I think we've, we've, we've all had that experience. Uh, George Pransky talked about that, about having a great private practice back in the early 80s, making a lot of money. And once he had the understanding, he just did not feel right. And his, uh, the clinic manager called and said, George, what's wrong? He said, well, I just can't, I can't do this approach anymore. And, um, and so he left the practice, started his own. And he said, it, he told this at one uh, speaking engagement and somebody came up and said to him, you know, that must've took a lot of courage for you to leave that practice and, and reduce your income by 75%. And he said, no, he said, it didn't take any courage at all. It just, I, I, I just had to do it. Mm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool, well, thank you very much for doing this with me, Tom. Well, thank you very much. I've got somebody coming in at two o'clock. I'm gonna teach them how to squeeze their nose and look up to the right and take deep breaths. Awesome, right, cool. Hey, I've enjoyed it, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, thank you for your time. You're welcome, take right, care. Tom, take care, bye-bye.